for the oh wait I forgot something very important and your shirt is reminding me your Mets shirt forgot to double check with you guys hope this is cool I ask all of our readers before they read from their work to share a brief anecdote about Queens Ryan's is going to come right out of his ass. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our June 11, 2019 event with Kathleen Alcott, Ryan Chapman, and Nick Mancusi. This event took place just a couple of months after I gave birth to my second child, and I think in the intros you can hear Ryan Chapman reference the names of both of my children. Uh, This is also the second time that Kathleen Alcott appeared at the series, and you might hear some background noise because this was a summer event, and so there were some people in the backyard of the bar uh, that you can hear in the background. And remember, we're very proud of Queens at LIC Reading Series, so before each person reads from their work, they're going to share a brief anecdote about Queens. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to the next episode. And now let's jump into LIC Bar, where I'm introducing our first reader, Nick Mancusi. Without further ado, Nicholas Mancusi has written about books and culture for the New York Times Book Review, Washington Post, Daily Beast, Miami Herald, Boston Globe, Minneapolis Star Tribune, Newsday, Newsweek, NPR Books, American Arts Quarterly, Bomb Magazine, and other publications. Where the fuck did you find time to write a book? I don't know. His debut novel, A Philosophy of Ruin, publishes a week from today by Hanover Square. He lives in Brooklyn, so he just had to take the train here, am I right? Holy cow, it's so easy. We should have you here every month. Let's give it up for Nick. Should I sit? I'm going to see how that feels. Oh, that, look at that. Usually I got the, like, the tall guy problem when I spend 30 seconds uh, trying to figure out how to how a microphone works. Anyway, well, thanks for having me. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Nadine. Uh, good to see you again. You remember me, surely. I was wearing this same shirt last time. I was here. Um, so, yeah. Oh, let's do Queens anecdote first. I, uh, so, I live in Brooklyn, but my father was raised in Douglaston, which is part of Queens, even though it's kind of far away from here. It's like half an hour, but it still counts as Queens. My mom was raised in Elmhurst, and uh, they lived together in a condo when they were young, maybe before they were married, in um, Forest Hills. So when I think of Queens, I think of um, walking down the old Shea Stadium ramps. And when I was a kid, and my dad would, you know, you could see that their, their condo was in a tower. And I remember him saying, Nick, that's where, that's where mom and dad used to live when we were like 24 or something. And he pointed to this tower over, over in uh, Forest Hill. So that, that, how's that? That's a Queens anecdote. Yeah, all right, good. So um, this is my novel. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Um, it's called The Philosophy of Ruin. It comes out in exactly... Seven days, if today's the 11th. I am losing my mind, but I'm keeping it together for tonight. Um, it is about a youngish professor of philosophy who is uh, seduced and blackmailed by a student into running drugs from Mexico back to the school one time. So that's probably all you need to know for what I'm going to read. Uh, in this section, Oscar, who's my main character, the philosophy professor that I mentioned, has sort of made the pickup of this of this bag of we'll find out and he's in a motel room by himself he unzipped the large main compartment and saw what was inside here in his in his hands was proof that everything was exactly as it seemed the bag of drugs was nothing other than a bag of drugs this had all been real 
Don had refused to tell him the, the specifics of what he would be picking up beyond allowing that it was a fair quantity of illegal but not particularly amoral or physically ruinous drugs, which he assumed meant cocaine, but he never imagined that it could possibly be this much. Inside the bag were four large, soft brick shapes, each about the size of a ream of printer paper wrapped in duct tape. He didn't have to be a DEA agent to know that they would weigh exactly one kilo each. In this moment, Oscar doubted not only the spasm of bad decisions that had led him to this horrible ordeal, but also every decision he had made in his life. The decision to leave home, the decision to eschew the pursuit of money over all else, the decision to try to be truly smart, the endless hours he had spent in pursuit of perception. He tried to return to his mantra to stem the rising tide of panic in his chest, but he saw immediately that he would not be able to suppress it. He was seized with a single instinct, which was to get as much space as possible between himself and the contents of this bag. A thought intruded, elbowing through the urge. You can flush it, and then you need to flush it. Flush it and tell Dawn you lost it, or sold it, or it was stolen, or to do her worst and go fuck herself. Sorry, there's kids here. Do her worst and go fuck herself. Uh, but that she had chosen the wrong man for the job, and he would rather take his chances with professional disgrace and financial ruin than bear this thing on for another mile. Hell, flush it and go tell, go tell the cops yourself. See if her safeguards are as strong as she thinks. Confident that he was finally thinking clearly and forcing to the periphery of his thoughts the threats of physical violence and the promise of monetary salvation for his family, he dragged the bag into the tiny bathroom and sat down on the floor at the foot of the toilet. He knew that this was a bad idea, but it was nested under so many other bad ideas that he wasn't even sure what that meant at this point. All he could think about was how good it would feel to be safe again. He didn't have a knife, so he produced his key ring and found the sharpest one, the small one, to his book locker in the school library. He began to saw away at the middle of the duct tape of one of the bricks until a small hole developed. As the bag flexed, it exhaled tiny puffs of white powder, which landed on Oscar's hands and immediately made him feel filthy. Finally, he held the brick over the water of the bowl and thrust the key so that he could begin a lateral disemboweling cut. Some of the powder wafted out, like from a pitcher's rosin bag. The key clicked against something hard buried in the brick's middle. Hmm. He, bought, he brought the brick to his lap and poked around a bit more and confirmed that there was indeed something inside that was not powder. He worked the hole that he had made until it was about an inch long and he could get his fingers inside. What he pulled out was another smaller Ziploc bag that contained within it some kind of electronic device. Intrigued now, Oscar set the brick down on top of the other three and brought the device to the small desk and turned on the lamp. It was a bit larger than one inch square, made of gray plastic with a small battery compartment and something that looked almost like an antenna. Oh. Oscar jumped, fumbled for the lamp switch, couldn't find it, and ripped the cord out of the wall. Then he dove across the bed to turn out the overhead and frantically lowered the blinds. He double-checked that he had locked the deadbolt and fed the nut on the feeble little brass chain into its slot. In the dark, taking care to make no noise, he went back to the desk and examined the device by the light of his shitty cell phone, which, he noted, was at 20% power. Now that he was looking at things on their face, he did not attempt to convince himself that this thing was anything other than a tracking device of some sort. It was indeed quite possible, he told himself, that I am being followed. Actually, he was going to just go ahead and mark that one down as a definite. It was quite possible that he had been followed to this place. 
it was quite possible that his hypothetical followers were watching this room currently. He went to the window and raised the level of the blinds to one millimeter above the sill so that he could kneel on the floor and look out at the parking lot. All seemed still. Passing light from the highway was visible over a small embankment on the other side of the lot where arc lights illuminated a sad menagerie of cars that stood in contrast to his expensive, over-designed SUV. Although he was able to look at his situation truthfully, he was not yet prepared to decide on a course of action, and so he stayed like this, on his knees, forehead pressed against the fabric of the blinds, for some time. After what felt like an hour, but was probably more like ten minutes, he found that he was praying. Dear God, dear Mom, dear Uncle Stephen, who died in a helicopter in Vietnam, please help me, please help me, please help me. His eyes closed. After another indeterminate amount of time, something either without or within him caused them to open. Then, as he watched, a black pickup truck, the black pickup truck, followed into the, pulled into the lot and parked. Its lights shut off. Oscar noted with some degree of happiness that he did not feel particularly scared, perhaps because his capacity for fear had been pushed past a certain threshold beyond which further increases failed to register. Or, better stated, he was scared, he was terrified, but he wasn't paralyzed. He crawled on his knees, for some reason this felt safer than standing, even though the blinds were closed, and grabbed the device and lay down with it on the floor next to the bed. From outside, he thought he heard the car doors shut. He propped his phone up on its side and in the anemic light of its screen, fumbled with the battery door on the strange device. He slid it open with his thumb and detached the D battery from the wire clip. Back at the window, peering through the slit in the blinds, he could make out three slim figures, dark with shadow, conferring by the hood of the truck. One of them held something in his hand that glowed, either a phone or something with a screen, and he gestured with it toward the building, sweeping it from end to end. The figure in the middle, the tallest one who wore the hat that Oscar had noticed earlier on the road, shook his head and then said something to the third, and then turned back to the first and prodded him in the chest with his finger. As Oscar watched them, they seemed to come to some sort of conclusion. As they began to move toward the building, they were swept for an instant in the headlights of a turning car, and he could see their clothes, jeans, boots, but not their faces. They passed down out of Oscar's vision into the row of doors on the first floor. Oscar couldn't think, tried his limbs and couldn't move. He felt sweat form on the back of his legs. A minute later, by looking sideways out of the extreme edge of the window, he could see an arm appear at the top of the stairs at the end of the second floor's outdoor hallway. A veined hand and forearm below, below a rolled up white sleeve. That's all the angle would allow him to see. The hand extended a finger and pointed down the hall. Oscar lowered the blinds completely and lay down on, the, on his stomach on the opposite side of the bed from the door. He could hear footsteps approaching slowly from down the hall but he did not hear the men say anything to each other. He felt his heartbeat against the floor like hammer blows, and he had the momentary terror that it could be heard out in the hall and would give him away like a scent. The sound of their footsteps passed from the left of the door and moved down to the next room to the right, stopped there, and then returned two rooms back to the left. The sounds of softly spoken Spanish followed. Oscar couldn't pick out any words. They were now standing directly outside his door. He could hear six feet and the weight they carried. He felt their presence like a fire, sucking the oxygen out of the room through the crack under the door. Peripheral sounds died away. The whir of the fan, the tiny hum of the fluorescent lights, 
the buzz of the ice machine outside were all muted as the world seemed to pause for an inhalation in the moment before the window would shatter or the door would come flying in off its hinges. There was a tiny knock at the door. Thank you. Give it up one more time for Nick Mancusi for getting us rolling. Nick, thank you, you, uh, you for reading through the, the ambient sounds. All right, Ryan Chapman is a Sri Lankan American writer originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Let's give it up for the... Yeah. You too? No. No, you're from Melbourne. You just like the places that start with M. All right. His work has appeared online at The New Yorker, GQ, Book Forum, Bomb, Guernica, and The Believer. He's received fellowships from Vermont Studio Center and the Malay Colony for the Arts, and now lives in upstate New York, which is just like this vast place that we just, anything north of New York City, right? Upstate New York. His debut novel, Riots I Have Known, which is available for sale right over here, just published very recently on May 21st. So it's still like newborn, baby. What is, what, I don't know how, is it like dog years for book years, or is it like human years? I don't know. It's immortal. Ryan's book is immortal. Let's give it up for Ryan. He's going to read from it for you right now. Hi, everyone. Um, This is exciting because I used to come here as a, I don't know, drunken audience member. Now I get to be a semi-drunken author. Um, My... uh, Queen's anecdote is relates to um, being a Minnesotan. Um, a few years ago, uh, the replacements played Forest Hills. Before I tell the story, is anyone here from Forest Hills besides Nick's parents? Okay, good. Um, and a friend was like, I have an extra ticket. Do you want to go? Like, They start in like two hours. I was like, awesome. He said, I have a car. Hop in it. We're going to go to Forest Hills. We're going to see the replacements, the band that you've loved since you were a young boy and just reunited. And we took off. Um, And then uh, if any of you have been to Forest Hills in a car, you know that the people there don't like strangers. And I don't think it has anything to do with, um, you know, socioeconomic background or, or what have you, but... Um, we could hear the concert as we looked for parking. And it was kind of cool because we heard a lot of our favorite songs. Then we heard some songs we didn't really know, which was also kind of fun. But it took us so long to find parking that we did miss the concert. (laughs) And so I do love Astoria. I do love LIC. But I will, you know, tell Forest Hills to go fuck itself. Um, There will be swearing in my portion. I'm sorry, Gaius. And Adina will never hear this. So that's okay. Um... So I'm going to read just a little bit from my book, which, uh, as Catherine mentioned, takes place uh, during a prison riot. The um, book is written in the form of an editor's letter by the um, head of a prison literary magazine who is incarcerated, has caused this large-scale riot, and is barricaded inside the prison's uh, computer center. And this takes place in upstate New York. He's from Trincomalee, Sri Lanka. And um, I think the only thing you need to know is that the uh, newsletter is called The Holding Pen. 
and he used to be a doorman at the fictional um, Park Avenue building called the Bernays. Um, and yeah, that's it. Um, anything that sounds confusing is intentional. Um, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, yeah, okay. And his friend is Wilfred. If there were anyone whose prose reached water cooler renown in our 12-issue run, it would be Fritz Balls McGennehy. I regret ever signing off on his scabrous Romana clef of abuse and malfeasance at Exeter Prep, with its tabloid bait half-masked by thin pseudonyms, a tale primed for tickling the erogenous zones of the body politic, and, even worse, Fritz went ahead and killed himself like an utter moron. Page 6, Prison Radio, CSI Miami, the rush to production Dakimakura body pillow. These sealed his reputation across all four quadrants, as movie marketers like to say. Fritz's fame hit its apex as the holding pen, qua literary journal, hit its nadir. That novella is truly a terrible piece of hack work I included only because last October was a slow month. Had I known Fritz's plan, I would have pulled his story young in and let the moron hang for no reason. Though I suppose if his plan had been disrupted, he might never have punched his clock, as they say, continuing to live and toil in artistic obscurity like all the true artists, honing his craft and eventually producing something worthy of the holding pen we all know and love, not the holding pen he took a giant shit on with his awful novella. <laughs> Reader, you know all this. What you may not know is that Fritz tried to kill himself several times before, always during lulls in the news cycle, before the AP wire closed for the day. Lest you think Fritz a depressive case, a romantic case, exactly what he would want you to think, I should say. I hate to gossip, but it must be said. He just couldn't master the hangman's noose. He kept falling to his cell floor in a blooper reel of self-abnegation. And to put to rest the rumors once and for all, no. The coroner did not find a short story folded into Fritz's rectum. That is hearsay. Though in keeping with the depths to which the conniving bastard would sink, and so readers must disregard any new fiction bearing his name. To his credit, the hangman's noose is a wily knot which demands practice. Wilfred once told me it is not uncommon for a spell of failed attempts to break out every decade or so, as the inmate turnover takes with it this particular institutional knowledge. Every generation has to make its own mistakes. None of us are exempt, except maybe Wilfred, who replied yes. He does know how to make a hangman's noose. No, he's not going to tell you. Happily, the holding pen remains a respected journal despite the blemish of the McGennehy affair. In the past two months alone, I've been called to blurb new releases from venerable trade houses and university presses alike. There's Boys Will Be Boys, the arboreal penetration of negative space, quote, a devastating monograph. River of Dawn, quote, a devastating first novel by one of the premier voices of the French-Korean experience. And The Mathematician's Daughter's Diary, quote, a devastating inquiry into the secrets buried between fathers and daughters and the ineffable movements of the human heart. I never finished that last one. I lost the thread there for a moment. My apologies. You never know, sorry, you know your mind takes the most circuitous paths inside. Someone should conduct MRIs on convicts to see if we're wired differently. Memories, that's where it really begins. Every new fish and old timer will tell you the same. 
you have your frame-worthy classics, maybe two or three dozen, the old reliables brightening your internal wattage. After a few months inside, something in the archive breaks. Your endless inventory begins retrieving half-images, unbidden, ghost traces of the nothing days of youth. An insomniac night debating whether the refrigerator from the Hell's Kitchen apartment opened from the left or the right. You're certain the one in the De Silva's kitchen opened from the left. Your hand crossed your body to grip the long, shallow arc of the handle, a gesture you repeated a million times. This you knew with certainty. But the Hell's Kitchen apartment, maddening. And the rub was you couldn't share this with anyone. Nobody wanted to hear it. It's worse than listening to someone recount last night's dream. The very act of writing this down brings new memories forward. Or perhaps I should say new memories of the vexing struggle to piece together old memories. Around month 10, I noticed an encroaching Technicolor filter, the hues richer, the soundtrack cleaner. I suspected my imagination and my sense of self-preservation were working hand in hand. I'd attempt to recall the moment in Montessori when Miss Gunasikara asked each of us to recite our home address. It must have been an exercise in self-reliance. We were just out of the crib and already they're terrorizing us. Miss Gunasikara comes to me and I freeze. I don't know the house number or the street. Even worse, I don't understand these demarcations or what they signify. We never received any mail and West Trincomalee didn't get street signs until the construction boom. I knew every second of my panic would only provoke suspicion from the reader and students. Was it the same number as the previous student, plus one? I could manage that. Perhaps it's my birth date. That'd be convenient. I decided to wing it, declaring four, six, eight, eight, one, three, seven, six, five, two, four, until Miss Gunasikura's gentle smile twists in one corner and she asked me to stop and to be sure to ask Father Christopher that evening. It's a well-trod story, one which never failed to charm the biddies at the Bernays. But now I wonder, did I really wear over faded blue overalls? Was this invention? Wasn't Miss Gunasikara older? My recollection was interpreted, or sorry, my recollection was interrupted by the higher mind, which, sensing the attempt to see it whole, assembled a self-defeating feint. At night, I would spend hours debating these changes, measuring the revisionist damage, wrestling with the greased pig of memory. The unfortunate truth is this detective work fostered a recursive paranoia, wherein the objects in question changed under such questioning. I knew better than to keep working at it. There was a real danger of losing my mental bearings. The Ouroboros of suspicion, once established, is enough to rend it all. I acknowledge this is how lesser men go insane. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan Chapman. All right. Um, so, Kathleen Alcott, guys. Yes. Kathleen, Kathleen is an alumna of the series. She was here a couple years ago reading in the winter when we had the fireplace roaring. I do recommend coming in the winter for the full season of LSE reading series. Um, she read from Infinite Home last time, which is also available for sale here. And she has a new book out, and it's amazing. I would like to introduce her to you now. Born and raised in Northern California, which is not like Queens at all. 
Is it like Queens? It's not like Queens at all. Kathleen Alcott is the author of the novels America Was Hard to Find, which is her latest right here, Infinite Home, also right here, and The Dangers of Proximal Alphabets. Her short fiction, criticism, memoir, and food writing have appeared in outlets including Zoe Trope All Story, The New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, The Los Angeles Review of Books, Ziziva, and Tin House. R.I.P. Tin House. Just had their last issue. It got applause. Good. Um, in 2017, her short story, Reputation Management, was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Short Story Award. Her short story, Natural Light, appears in the Best American Short Stories of 2019. She's a fellow of the McDowell Colony, and she's taught at Columbia University and Bennington College. Kirkus Reviews calls America Was Hard to Find impressively ambitious and extremely well-written. New York Times uh, says the energy of this novel comes from its shimmering, knife-sharp descriptions of small and often devastating moments of individual experience within those larger histories. You'll see the, the span of this book covers so many major things that happened in American history um, and beyond. And Publishers Weekly says Alcott's novel is a sharp and moving reminder of the human dimension of even the most outsized historical events. It's really, really beautifully written book. I can't wait to hear Kathleen read from it right now. Let's give a warm round of applause for Kathleen Alcott. Um, thank you for having me. I forgot to carve through my brain for um, an anecdote about Queens, but because this, none of this novel is funny, I'm going to tell you a funny story that was prompted by a member in the audience who's this old student of mine, Lily Graham, who's going to be a very famous novelist one day, I feel confident. Um, and Lily surprised me tonight at the reading series, and so we can say that this becomes a story about Queens because it's your story about Queens. Uh, Lily was in a workshop of mine last spring, and it was a humiliation to teach her, and I was working on the edits of this novel and teaching and, you know, doing all this stuff and fairly sleep-deprived, and the first thing that happens when I'm sleep-deprived is that I start transposing words and syllables, and so... About a, about a year ago, how long, Lily? I don't know. Let's say this happened 14 months ago. It's the most embarrassing moment in my teaching career. Um, and these are like very buttoned up, like rigid um, adults who intimidate me for the most part. And I was asking them to do something, and I, I can't remember um, what I was asking them to do. And my tongue was choosing between the words quickly and briefly. And I said, I want you to open up your notebooks and I want you to do this so queefly. <laughs> and the room was like torn in half and nobody could look at each other for the rest of the class or for the rest of the semester. And that's what I think about every time I see Lily. Anyway, read her novel whenever it comes out. Uh, yeah, read it so queefly. Um, so I hope that doesn't happen while I'm reading, but I did my tongue twisters. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read from the beginning of the novel. Um, this is a novel about, uh, you know, it's the biopsy of a, a radical, a woman who ends up, um, joining a fringe cause of anti-Vietnam activism, which was protest of the Apollo program. Uh, but before she became that, 
she became a feminist. And she is, at this point, working at a, a, an Air Force pilot's bar in the Mojave Desert in 1957. The book starts with Sputnik and ends with the Challenger disaster. Um, so this is uh, right at the beginning. Um, that's it. In under a year, she had lost touch with all of her friends, girls whose hair she had braided into hers, whose naked bodies she had watched more closely than her own, and so she would tell no one about the first day he took her up in a plane. They had disappeared into their new lives, those Cindy's and Judy's, at Scripps and Mills and Bryn Mawr, and she into hers, the gin cut with lime, the desert cut with wind. Her forearms and deltoids were toned from lifting the chrome canisters above her and shaking. The sounds of the planes from the base a mile away, seized by five, a quiet that always seemed to register with the men as a failure. It was as if, when the noises stopped, they began looking for someone to blame. When someone called her a cunt for the first time, she made his $10 change in pennies. There was not a second, at least, that she heard. Her stationery had been lilac, embossed in gold, a gift from her parents, and the day she met him, she had just thrown it out, watched the purple take on oil and the trash under the register. Vincent and Faye were the only people who did not step outside the bar to watch, but they could hear the hooves shifting on the buckling metal slide and the pilot's hand slapping at the shallow pool. The horse was Lloyd, astride him Faye's sister Charlie. If Charlie's Palomino could make it down the slide without slipping, walk the chlorinated circle, and leap over the stand of cacti that bordered the far edge of the pool, five of the men had vowed to make their next flight without pants. If Lloyd failed or his passenger fell, Charlie owed all 16 present a steak dinner. On the wall, a fractured Coca-Cola clock said five after seven. The wager's conception had left the stools along the bar, pulled far from their original line, some bunched in groups where men had made bets on the bet, one on its side in the middle of the room. Atop it had stood Rusty, a pilot famous among them, for a flawless record with carrier landings and for once having drawn on the sleeping face of the first man to break the speed of sound, a permanent markered monocle. He had pushed back his feather-fine blonde hair as he composed an impromptu limerick. There was an, an old horsey named Lloyd who never did see too much Freud. Vincent sat closest to the screen door where a desert wind came through warm and pointed. It was his first time at the doctor's as it was unofficially called. I was at the doctor's until very late, they would say. The doctor demanded to see me. Faye leaned on the warped wood of the bar, her sight fixed on the window above the piano. Through it, a green bark tree with yellow flowers leaned at an angle that suggested remorse somehow, pleading. She poured from high, the liquor catching the strata of dusky light before reaching his tumbler. Faye. Vincent. He spoke his name without meeting her face which she had turned toward him and opened somehow, a stern way she had of holding it released. 
Not in the gambling mood tonight? He sat with his shoulders gnarled forward, shook his jaw left and right. There are monkeys better behaved than some of these fucks after eight, she said. Would you call them flying fucks? She raised her glass, gin, just ice, no soda. You're not the only one thinking a monkey might do a better job, he said. God bless us and God bless the Russians. I personally derive no small bit of happiness from the thought of those chimps in flight suits. Imagine the underwear. Imagine the shoes. He strained to look at her, the remaining light showing the difference between his eyes, one green and glacial, the other flinty, lightless as an ashtray. He was 33 but retained the sandiness of a boy's complexion, a face the sun loved but hadn't punished. Outside, they chanted her sister's name, the horses. Someone stepped out. Someone stepped into their car to turn the radio on, and the headlights sailed through the mesh door, beating down on the tilted portraits of aviators and Hollywood cowboys, the pale lucite beads that necklace the beer taps. His eyes fell down the rag, slipped between two of her fingers, the pinched area where her shirt stole into her shorts. Coating the floor were peanut shells and cellophane cigarette packages. He pointed at the book she had open on the bar. What are you reading there? It was Whitman, part of a transcendentalist program. She was guiding herself through, and she read him a few lines. For these states tend inland and toward the western sea, and I will also. He told her she looked like a cowboy when she read something in how she turned out her feet. She replied that he looked like a horse, the way his mouth was open. How many teeth do you have besides too many, she said, and turned around. Into the bar then came a different set of sounds, the bed-upon event itself, water battering the pavement and Charlie's yell, a mean joy that sputtered, then vanished. They heard the thump of a body stopped, the percussion of the men's feet as they all began to run. Faye was past Vincent and out the door in four seconds, searching for her sister. The inn's twelve doors, arranged in a U around the pool, were painted a cheap blue, the color of ocean mixed with bleach. Across the road and into the dust, four men moved through the stands of yucca, the lone spindles leaning into the wind. A sound made her look down. Charlie was sprawled on her back, gurgling in shock. Faye reached her and crouched, swiped the bar cloth along the round of her sister's face and over her chest, which was hauling breath erratically, short, reedy inhalations, followed by groaning releases. She's okay, someone said from above them. Just lost her wind. And her fucking horse, another mentioned. A faggot of a horse. Might have cracked a rib. Charlie opened one eye, the sharp green of it a sad dare. Oh, Faye, I have to tell you something, baby. Listening. Can you make these motherfuckers steak? He did not, she would learn, much believe in valedictions. All conversations he had were part of the same long talk he had with his life, and this rendered goodbye unnecessary. As she removed the slabs of meat from the industrial fridge out back, returned to the kitchen to rub salt and pepper into them, Vincent had gone. The men's conversation moved from the events of the afternoon into a language she only partially absorbed. With great solemnity, they mouthed the phrase X-15 to each other and nodded. People in love, 
and shocked by it. It was the plane they believed that would reach space. The mood turned over when someone grumbled a certain word, NASA, and then sweaty money emerged, raised index fingers, made tight circles to indicate more, right now. She served fifth and sixth rounds. National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, she heard someone say through his nose. Vincent was part of this subset, 300 men working among 2,000 others. A howl came from the bathroom. Someone had spread industrial glue on the toilet seat, and she spent 10 minutes chipping at it with her pocket knife as she smoked, crouching on the mouth, listening to the conversation come in through the prop door. Do you think that simulator, do you think it's anything at all like the real thing? She had heard this vein of speculation so often she knew how they would be sitting. Elbows meeting on the bar, they murmured to each other, their eyes never fixed on any one thing. So as to better convey the smallness, the placidity of the question. For appearance's sake, they might have been reciting state capitals to combat boredom. Although they could not listen well to each other, the one not speaking was always nodding, biting at the inside of his mouth as though to extract some vital information from it, calling the other by his name so that he could hear the regard there. It's not as though they can take the X-Series from us. It belongs to the Air Force. They're just doing some checks, maybe publishing a paper or two on what we've done. It's us who will take it. Space. The control stick, a fucking broom handle. What else? Ironing boards for wings? I'll be sure to ask Arlene whether she's got any to spare. Not going up there with one hand on my cock, the other out the window for the joy of it without a care in the world for the mechanisms. There were the pilots she hated, but she was moved by their lives. In the main, they believed in intuition, theirs, and this impressed her, the voice that was quiet until they were airborne, where it spoke in stark, lucid imperatives. It was a law she'd bought into without realizing that the only apology a man needed to offer the world was his talent. Thanks. Give it up for Kathleen Alcott. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.